So we turn our attention now to the second half of our training, or of our lecture, or talk, toward a theology of the human person. So we kind of uh, did some critiques in the first part. Uh, we want to kind of look at the positive, so what do we do with all, all this information? Uh, how, how do, what do we, as Christians, do constructively? Uh, how are we supposed to understand uh, our, our bodies and our souls in light of Scripture and in light of uh, the false assumptions of modern culture? And so we want to build what's known as a theology of the human person. That's where we need to start. Uh, if you attended uh, Pastor Tim's uh, nightlight session on anthropology, I'll touch on a little bit of what he talks about, but I'm going to be expanding on it with regard to specifically mental health, okay? We needed to kind of take a look at the modern untruths about mental health because we need to see how modern culture has obscured and dimmed the human person before seeing the light of Scripture shine upon the human person. And so we needed to see the insufficiency of the modern view, as helpful as it is, uh, before we see the sufficiency of the biblical view. And having said that, what we see in Scripture is that it develops a holistic person of who you are, your being, your personhood, as a unified being who is first created for a relationship with God. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you are a visitor or you've been here for a long time, you are, the first thing about who you are is that you are created for God. You were created for a relationship with the God of the universe. Whereas modern culture has untethered itself from God and forfeited life, the Christian position, the scriptures, and uh, remind us that the only path to true human flourishing is God himself. The path to, true, to truly being who you are is knowing God. In fact, uh, Jesus actually says and prays in John chapter 17, verse 3, he says, And this is eternal life, that, the, that, that you know God. That the goal of eternal life is to know God. To know God is to have life. You know, one of the saddest characteristics about the modern untruths of mental health is what's missing. It's missing God. And it's hopeless, not because that there is no knowledge of God, but because of a suppression of the knowledge of God and turning to something else instead. If the best that modern culture is able to offer is temporary relief in medicine, in diagnoses, in self-care, then no wonder people are unhappy, constantly restless, always searching, always unhappy. It's no wonder they look for self-esteem in grades, in what people think of them, in college acceptances, in people's opinions of them. Their mental health deteriorates when grades don't go well, when colleges don't accept them, and when they're rejected by others. It's because it's in God, according to the Apostle Paul, that we live and move and have our being. No matter how good or bad we feel, we are sustained by the God who works all things together for our good. That's a biblical truth that we can bank our lives on. Any proper understanding of who we are as human beings starts here. You were created for God. You were created for God. The second thing that we learn about Scripture and how it develops a holistic picture of the human person is that we are also engaged in spiritual warfare. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. The scriptures also remind us that as, as those created for a relationship with God, there is an adversary who seeks to pry us from a relationship with him, mostly done through covert operations of deception, of half-truths, and even temptation. The half-truths of modern culture, as we've seen, is that everything can be reduced to biology, which is obviously not true. But it shouldn't surprise us that modern culture believes this because the whole world is under the power of the evil one, as the Apostle John reminds us. Again, the whole world is devoid of God. And so the deception of modern culture is the redefinition of behavior that Scripture characterizes as sin. And so some DSM diagnoses, as we've seen so far, are fundamentally moral, legal issues which have been recast as mental illnesses. So for example, 
recurring verbal and physical aggression has been now recast as a mental illness. The recurring desire to steal, which is known as kleptomania, has been recast as a mental illness. Pedophilia, voyeurism, and other recurring disorderly sexual desires have all been recast as mental illnesses, which obviously scripture describes as sin. And so what we or our culture tell us about ourselves and our bodies and about how God views us can also become clouded by demonic lies. Whereas scripture says that our bodies are created with inherent worth, modern culture says that worth is determined not by God, but by our body image or by how we look or how others think of us. And so modern culture's lie is that we need to be a certain way, not only which not only creates and perpetuates guilt and shame, it also participates in the agenda of the accuser. And so the scriptures remind us that we're not merely just wrestling with flesh and blood. There is a spiritual darkness that covers our world and our hearts. We're wrestling against the cosmic powers of this present darkness that has darkened the hearts and minds of unbelievers, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. We live not under, but still in the influence of thought governed by spiritual darkness. And so it shouldn't, be, shouldn't surprise us that modern culture is webbed with lies. The age to come is still in the future, but we still live in the present evil age. And so the scriptures require us to be vigilant and watchful, aware of the temptations and the, and the untruths of modern culture. Third thing that scripture reminds us is that as human people, as human persons, is that human flourishing happens when we are placed in community. The human person is also brought into a web of relationship. You are never, you are never meant to exist simply on your own. You exist in relationship. It's the reason why the pandemic, I think, was so hard for all of us. was because we were completely, literally isolated from other people. And I think a lot of us notice the effects of that. I think a real significant challenge brought about by the pandemic for most of us was the loss of human connection, human touch. I think it made us realize that we really need one another. Uh, there are countless scriptures here, and Lighthouse talks about community all the time, so I don't really need, need to belabor the point here. And so I'm going to move us to our final and the most important and longest point of our talk is that finally, is that human as human persons, the scriptures tell us that we are physically embodied spiritually ensouled, physically embodied, spiritually ensouled. And so after about an hour or so, we finally have gotten to the really relevant and juicy part, the part that I keep saying that we'll talk about later. Uh, here it is, I promised. Um, so here it is. A fourth essential that scripture helps us to see about the whole person, the human person, is that we are physically embodied and spiritually ensouled. We are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. I'll, I'll kind of explain what I mean in just a second. But our, our, but our personhood is not only located in God's world. We're not only created for our relationship with God. We not are, we're not only located in a battlefield against cosmic powers. We're not only located in the context of church community. But our whole selves, who we are intrinsically, who we are, the person sitting in that seat right there, who you are, you are located in a body soul, unified, whole. The person sitting in that seat, you as a person, you are a body, whole, uh, body, soul, unified individual. And so by divine design, because we're made in the image of God, we constitute one unified being. We are one unified being. We are souls and we are also bodies. We don't just have bodies, we are bodies. We don't just have souls, we are souls. That includes Christians and non-Christians because again, we are created in the image of God. Every single person who has ever lived, who will ever live, has been created in the image of God. And as souls and bodies, we're indivisibly united as one unified being. By divine design, we are one unified being, indivisibly body and soul. The scriptures describe that as one unified holistic being, there are two irreducible aspects of who we are intrinsically. 
We are souls and we are bodies. We are souls and we are bodies. <clears throat> the, first irreducible, in the, the first irreducible aspect is that the scriptures describe, describe that we are souls, which is often synonymous with the mind, the spiritual mind, not the, not the literal physical mind, the brain, um, or the inner person, or the heart. And so, the, so scripture uses soul often synonymously with the spiritual mind, the inner person, or what's known as the heart. I think that's a more familiar term at Lighthouse, the heart. Both in the Old and New Testaments, the heart, or what's known as the inner person, or the mind, are all referred to be the source of moral orientation, what we will to do, good or evil. Call it the heart, the soul, or the inner person, or the mind. Nevertheless, it is the source of intentionality, especially connected with the will of God. And so when we're talking about um, our hearts, we're actually talking about uh, our desires. We're talking about um, our willingness to obey the will of God or not our desire to do the will of God or not. That's our heart. And so at the center of all human agency is our heart, our inner person, our spiritual mind, or our soul. Okay, those are, again, like, like I mentioned, they're all synonymous terms to describe the soul. At the center of our being, we are people who make, in other words, spiritual allegiances. Okay? Where, where, where Scripture speaks of our souls or our hearts in moral categories as obedient or disobedient. It talks about, when we talk about spiritual allegiances, we're, what we're really talking about is worshiping God or worshiping something else instead, spiritual allegiance. And so when we're talking about the heart, we're talking about motives, we're talking about intent, we're talking about belief, willing, desire, agency, either for God or for something else. Now, before we move on to the second aspect of our personhood, who we are, there's something that we need to remember about the heart. We tend to treat and speak of our hearts as if it was like a cup, okay? I wish I had a cup with me. Also, if I had a cup, it would make a huge mess on the stage. I don't want to do that. Um, but we tend to treat and talk about our hearts as if it was like a cup, which doesn't really have much biblical precedent. The metaphors that the Bible typically uses to describe the heart are a fountain or a tree or even a well. But the picture, these pictures that these metaphors paint is that things come out of the heart but not enter it like a cup. So in the cup metaphor, if we experience fear or worry or sadness, we tell ourselves to not fear or to not be sad or to be anxious or to not be anxious as if our hearts are cups full of bad emotions that need to be emptied, filled, and replaced with something else instead, like trust and hope. I'm sure some of us have told other people that, like, don't fear, trust God, right? Um, we've all done it before, mainly harmless, but usually not helpful. First of all, the cup metaphor sometimes doesn't accurately describe human experience. So, for example, uh, when we feel nervous, Speaking in front of an audience, like yourselves here, uh, the nervousness may reveal something about our hearts. It may reveal that we fear what people think of us. Um, like, oh no, like what, what do people think of what I'm, what I'm wearing uh, or how my hair is. Um, it may reveal that we fear we'll say something wrong or stupid or dumb. Uh, so nervousness, in this case, uh, may reveal our desire for approval or even our lack of trust in God. So we're told that we need to just trust God more but it doesn't really make the nervousness go away. In fact, it makes us even worse. Uh, maybe we're just really sinful, we start thinking to ourselves. Maybe we're not even Christians. So what's going on here? Is it really true that we aren't trusting God? I mean, possibly our nervousness may reveal a lack of trust in God, but it could also be the case, too, that our nervousness is a normal bodily response to just speaking in front of a large audience, like this one here. For someone who isn't used to speaking in front of large audiences, it's a little nerve-wracking, right? For someone who's not used to doing it, I mean, I wouldn't expect you to be not nervous. Um, it's still, in fact, a little nerve-wracking for me. In other words, our nervousness may, can, can reveal complete, something completely normal about our bodies and not be sinful. Some 
psychosomatic responses like nervousness or sweatiness or like, you know, like dizziness, whatever, happen sometimes when our bodies seem to sense danger. Just that, that's physi- physiologically proven. Like the sweatiness that we may experience when we ride a roller coaster or when we descend in an airplane, you know, you know that you're not, likely crash, uh, you're not likely to crash and burn. You know you're not likely to fall off the roller coaster. You know you trust and believe that God is in control. But some of us still get nervous and have sweaty palms when we're riding, uh, I don't know, that one ride uh, at Disneyland. Um, Tower of Terror. I hate the Tower of Terror, okay? I get super nervous when I'm riding that. Yeah, anyway. So the cup metaphor doesn't see, I'm getting, I'm getting sweaty as I think about it right now. Um, I'm not even think, uh, consciously thinking about that. Okay, so the cup metaphor doesn't seem to fully account for what's going on, not just spiritually, but even physiologically. But secondly, the cup metaphor of the heart can go wrong because it tends to assume that sadness, fear, or even anger are always sinful emotions, which isn't always the case. They can be appropriate, legitimate responses to a not yet redeemed and broken world. We still live in days of sorrow. It is not yet the day when God will wipe every tear from our eyes once and for all. In fact, Ed Welch uh, writes that fear expresses our weakness amid the threats of daily life. But, and catch this, weakness itself is not sin. Experiencing weakness itself is not sin. And so instead, the Cappadocian church father, Basil of Caesarea, suggests that we should think of the heart more like a scale and less like a cup. He suggests that the heart is more like the internal court of the soul, like a scale which weighs and counterweighs. And so the heart holds intention, trust, and hope in God in the face of stress from public speaking, for example, or the terrifying experience of disaster, the sorrow from loss, the frustration of unchanging circumstances, the threat of the future, so that if you do fear or you are angry or you are upset, it doesn't automatically mean that you don't trust God. It just simply is a a reflection and symptom of living in a fallen, broken world. Trusting God doesn't replace anxiety, sadness, and burden. That's what's known as stoicism. Trusting God doesn't remove bad emotions. Rather, trusting God allows us to bear the weight of anxiety, sadness, and difficulty. That's Christianity. You see it all the time in the Psalms. David is fearful, and yet he says, I'm fearful, I'm fearful of Saul chasing me, and yet I will still put my hope in you, O God of my salvation. And so, David is wrestling. He's, he's experiencing troubling circumstances. It doesn't remove the fearful experience that he's experiencing uh, as he's being chased by Saul, but he's also at the same time trusting God too. And so trusting God, again, allows us to bear, support the weight of the anxiety and sadness and difficulty that we do often experience in a broken world. That is Christianity. And so that's the first irreducible aspect of our personhood, the heart. The second second irreducible aspect of our personhood is our bodies. The scriptures also describe that we are bodies. Now, the body, uh, contrary to common uh, modern opinion, is that the body is not a container of the soul. The body is not just like some meaningless thing that you just like, you know, throw around. You know, it doesn't matter if you bruise yourself here, or uh, that you do something, yeah, I had some examples that I will not go into. Uh, But the body is not a container of the soul. The body is not a cage where your soul has to be freed from your body. That is uh, a pagan notion. That is actually a Greek uh, philosophy that is corrupt. Uh, But the body is, according to the scriptures, the body is the mediator of the heart, if the heart initiates human agency and, orient, and, and moral orientation, the body mediates human agency. And so when the heart experiences desire, the, the body tends to animate that desire. Uh, so let's say, for example, that, that you know, there's, there's someone that you like, uh, but you're afraid of what they think of you. I know this is a very common uh, thing that some of you uh, might be experiencing. But because you like them, 
uh, you're afraid of doing anything that, you might, that might make you look dumb. And so your heart beats a little faster. Uh, every time you're around them, you're either talking more or talking less with them. Uh, you steal glances at them. Uh, you're happy when they laugh at your jokes. You're unhappy when they laugh at someone else's jokes. Uh, your heart experiences desire. And your body mediates that desire. And I think we, we know that from personal experience beyond just the, the people that we like. Uh, but when you look at scripture, you don't see this, uh, this parsing out of people into body and soul. Uh, scripture doesn't say your heart did this, um, but your body did this. Um, uh, like I mentioned, the body is, our whole persons are unified wholes. Uh, they're indivisibly joined together. And so, um, and so it usually is the case that, um, that whatever, our bo- our, whatever our hearts want to do, our bodies typically follow suit as well. Um, there's simply, like I mentioned, an assumption of the person as a unified being living in either obedience or disobedience to God. And so whereas Scripture refers to the heart in terms of obedience and disobedience, right and wrong, Scripture refers to the body in terms of strength and weakness. So for example, uh, it's, so actually some of the examples that I'm actually pointing out here is that there is sometimes a disconnect between what our hearts want and what our bodies are capable of doing. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, Jesus says that the spirit is willing, spirit also synonymous with souls, uh, but the body is weak, implying that the body imposes a certain limitation on our, heart, on our hearts and our desires. And so the body not only mediates human agency, but it also seems to qualify human agency as well. It seems to, in some ways, control human agency too, at the same time, in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 4, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes that though our outer selves is wasting away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. And so the hope that the Apostle Paul offers is that physical weakness or sickness doesn't have to pose a threat to our spiritual vitality. Okay, does it make sense? Spiritual or physical weakness does not have to pose as a limitation to spiritual vitality. The weakened body... Or a body that wastes away is not our hope. But as much as there, uh, th- these are two irreducible aspects of our personhood, it's important to remember that Scripture describes and sees the person as an embodied soul and an ensouled body. So, in other words, souls who are also bodies and bodies who are also souls. In other words, we are a psychosomatic unity. Psycho, uh, uh, psuche meaning soul, bo- uh, somatic meaning, uh, soma meaning body. We are a body-soul unity. Body and soul are not the same thing, but body and soul are indivisible. They are not separated. And so it isn't just that our hearts or our souls are responsible before God. Our whole selves, our entire persons, our unified being is responsible for God. It's the reason why the Apostle Paul says, and calls us to present our bodies to God as living sacrifices, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. It's it's interesting that he says, present, it's it's, it's interesting that he doesn't say, present your souls to God as a living sacrifice. He says, present your body uh, to God as a living sacrifice, assuming that our bodies also include our souls. And so what the scriptures present before us is a picture of a unified, unified person where we are body, spirit, image bearers. We are fully integrated as body and soul. And these two aspects of our personhood fully overlap. And so our goal is to see people, the person sitting next to you, the, person, the people that we care for, as in an integrated way. Not merely separating or bifurcating body and soul. We can't parse out people as bodies and as souls. They are one unified whole. Okay, having said that, having developed the theology of who we are in our personhood. Two implications. What does this all mean then? Two implications of embodiment and ensoulment. So two implications. The first implication is that because body and soul are fully integrated, fully overlapping, fully indivisible, there is a two-way relationship between desire and behavior. There's a two-way relationship between our hearts and our bodies. There's a two-way relationship between our souls or our spirits and our bodies, okay? They, they kind of interact with each other. And I'll explain what I mean by that. If it's true that body and soul fully overlap, it means that our worship 
of our hearts and the behavior of our bodies both mutually reinforce each other. So as much as behavior flows from our hearts, our hearts are also shaped by our actions. Does it make sense? While motivation begins in the heart and flows out into behavior, it's possible for external behavior to also affect internal motivations. As much as our hearts determine behavior, our behavior also shapes our hearts too. A really tangible example of this, because I'm sure you're wondering, what are the, what are the examples? A really tangible example of this is actually social media. As embodied souls, our hearts are qualified by our bodies, as we've seen from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 uh, and Matthew chapter 24. Um, our hearts are motivated by desire, right? And one of the ways that desire is motivated physiologically is by a brain chemical known as dopamine. You guys know what dopamine is? In case you don't, dopamine is a type of neurotransmitter. Your body produces it, and your nervous system uses it to send messages between nerve cells in your brain. Now, here's the the practical uh, cash out for us. Dopamine plays a role in how we feel pleasure. It's a big part of our unique human ability to think and to plan. It helps us uh, strive, focus, and find things entertaining and interesting. Dopamine, physiologically, motivates us to do things that we think will bring us pleasure. So, how does this relate to Instagram? Even in a harmless post on Instagram, you're motivated by just posting a post on Instagram. You're not trying to get likes. You just want to tell people what you're doing, okay? Harmless post. If we receive positive feedback, a like or a a positive comment, it stimulates our brains to release dopamine. That's what's happening, happening physiologically in social media when you post something on Instagram or when you do something on TikTok. It it stimulates our brains to release dopamine, rewarding our social media behavior and motivating us to repeat it. It's the reason why, if you've guessed it, it's the reason why social media is so addicting. It's the reason why me just telling you to stop doing social media stuff isn't helpful. It's because your brain is craving it. And so the point is that As much as our hearts desire and motivates behavior, it's possible for bodily behavior to shape and nurture a desire that was already in our hearts. Does it make sense? This is how addictions happen. So even if our brains don't cause our desires, there's at least a correlation between desire and behavior. Sin isn't just what we voluntarily choose to do. It's what we're also enslaved to. It's the reason why some theologians describe sin as voluntary slavery. Sin is something that we not only choose to do, it now has chosen us now. We're in its grip. And this is exactly why Jesus has come. He has come to free us from the bondage of sin and slavery. And so while sin doesn't originate in the body, what I'm actually, in, uh, what I'm actually, what I'm actually suggesting, what Scripture actually suggests, is that our bodies can be engraved and marked by sin and evil. It's possible for moral behavior, either righteous or unrighteous, to be etched onto our bodies in such a way that it becomes second nature. It's the reason why in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says to not let sin reign, not in our hearts, but again, as he says, not reign in our mortal bodies to make you obey its passions, but to present our members, and by members he really means our bodies, as slaves to righteousness. And again, in uh, Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul actually says to put to death the deeds of not the soul, but the body. And so again, like I've mentioned, so the scriptures seem to suggest that it's possible for our bodies to be engraved and etched and marked by, by sin. But while the body can be an obstacle to righteousness, it can also be an opportunity for righteousness as well. Making righteousness second nature doesn't just happen through thinking right thoughts about God, but by also practicing righteousness. It's the reason why we need to reinforce our worship of God by continuing to 
to love God, to actually put off sin, to actually repent, to actually change, to actually put in the hard work of pursuing peace, patience, kindness, love, joy, all the things of the fruit of the Spirit. We have to practice righteousness just as much as we have to worship God rightly. I think we get to worship God right. And by worshiping God, we'll produce good, right behavior. But what we also have to take into account too is that good behavior also reinforces our worship of God too. That's really what I'm actually trying to say. Okay? Now, I want to be very careful. I'm not saying that our bodies are the origin or the initiator of sin, okay? The body isn't the one that makes us sin. It's our hearts. The scriptures place greater emphasis on the evil desires of our hearts than on the body. The body may make it difficult for us to obey God, but the body can't keep us from obeying God. Our bodies can make life miserable, but our bodies can't make us sin. But at the same time, we don't want to completely rule out the possibility of the body being an agent for sin. If it's true that the body mediates human agency. The doctrine of the fall tells us that it affects us holistically as holistic body-spirit image bearers of God. But a question that you might have is, well, does this, practically, is, does this minimize culpability and responsibility if we give the body this much weight. Can we, can we actually just say, well, the, my, my body made me do it, so therefore uh, I am not held accountable to God for what I did. Or can we just say, can, can, we, can we blame it on the brain uh, for not trusting God or uh, for disobeying God? Um, can we actually say that? Does it minimize responsibility if we give the body this much weight? Not necessarily. There, there's actually a biblical theological precedent for culpability, responsibility, despite inability. Okay, so write that down. Responsibility is possible despite inability. In the first three chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul makes a very convincing case, I'd say actually an infallible case, that despite our inability to please God, God still, does, still holds us accountable for our inability. I mean, you see that all over Romans chapter 3, all over chapter, chapter, Romans chapters uh, 1 and 2. Even if at the end of the day, our bodies did make us do something, what we've actually learned about our bodies is that our body is still us. We are still our bodies. We're still, and therefore, we're still held accountable for our actions, conscious or otherwise. And so, of course, God holds us accountable for every desire, thought, intention, and action but he also holds us accountable in our bodies as well. And so as whole persons, we are completely held accountable to God. There's nothing that we have to blame but really ourselves when we sin. Can't blame it on someone else, can't blame it on our bodies, can't even blame it on our souls. It, it's our whole selves. We are the ones who do it. Okay, that's the first implication, okay? That there's a mutual uh, reinforcing and two-way street between uh, our bodies and our souls, uh, de- um, between worship of God and um, a right living before God. Um, that's the first implication. The second implication is that because the body and soul qualify each other, that we are in souled bodies, that we are in fleshed souls, uh, we must tend to each other accordingly. We must tend to each other accordingly. Now, while, like, like I mentioned just a second ago, while our bodies aren't the origin for sin, the strength or weakness of our bodies can affect our heart's susceptibility to sin. In other words, our heart, or, or, sorry, our bodies can highlight or minimize what was already latent or inside our hearts already. So for example, um, if we're hungry, some of you guys know this, if we're hungry, our hunger can reveal certain aspects of our hearts. Parents, you know this. Uh, Anger, frustration, annoyance, impatience, snappiness. And at the same time, uh, eating can also conceal those very same aspects of our hearts while also revealing other latent aspects of our hearts like lack of control or indulgence or even gluttony. And so what this actually shows us is that there is a very physical component to our, our spiritual responses to God. Uh, in fact, uh, the pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, writes this in his book, Spiritual Depression. He says, Does someone hold the view that as long as you are a Christian, it does not matter what the condition of your body is? 
Well, you will soon be disillusioned if you believe that. Physical conditions play their part in all this. And by all this, he really means spiritual conditions and spiritual ailments like depression um, and other uh, spiritual um, ailments like that. Um, and so what, actually what Martin Lowe-Jones is suggesting, what Scripture even suggests, is that sleep matters. The amount of time you sleep matters. It affects your mood. It doesn't sh- determine your mood, but it certainly shapes your mood. Uh, it, it shapes your, and it affects your obedience to God. It, it weakens your ability to either trust God or not. Uh, same with not just sleeping, but like I mentioned, with eating, uh, with resting. It's the reason why we can't just go, go, go. We are created as embodied souls. There are limitations to our bodies. And so we can't just go, go, go. You'll be burnt out. And so we can apply this principle even to the alleviation of pain, symptoms of mental disorder, and even taking medicine. And so earlier I had asked the question, um, can we see a psychiatrist? Is it sinful uh, to take medicine? Like Like I said, Scripture does not prohibit it. It's not sinful to. Can Christians alleviate symptoms of all kinds of illnesses or disorders? If we're just talking about possibility from a biblical point of view, of course. In fact, there are several places that Scripture gives attention to the body. Like, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, where God provided sleep, food, and water to a stressed out and burdened Elijah. I mean, you would think that, like, so, so the context in that passage is actually very interesting because Elijah was in a very, very difficult ministry environment. Uh, people were trying to kill him. People hated him because he was actually speaking truthfully about God, where, whereas false prophets weren't. And people didn't like that. The, the, uh, the northern kingdom, uh, the, sorry, the, the southern kingdom of Israel um, did not like that. Um, and so they were chasing after uh, Elijah. He's super discouraged. He's, on, uh, he has a, he's at the tip of a mountain, and he is super, super discouraged, uh, despairing of life itself. And you would think, well, you know, maybe God, uh, so, so God, you know, sees um, Elijah's spiritual condition. And you would think, you know, as, as good Christians, we think, oh, you know, maybe Elijah just needs, just needs more truth. He needs more Bible. He needs more promises of God. And that's true. I'm not knocking that. I'm not knocking that he needs prayer, that he needs truth, that he needs to repent. I'm not knocking that at all. But it's interesting that the first thing that he actually does for Elijah in this state is to give him food to give him drink, to give him rest. And so the body actually points out something that is actually necessary, that we need to actually attend to our bodies. Or even the time when the Apostle Paul told Timothy to take some wine for stomach problems in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. And so is Scripture against alleviating bodily symptoms? Of course not. As we've seen in these passages, Scripture gives allowance for it. In fact, part of the purpose of God becoming man was to relieve human suffering and brokenness. That's the entire reason why Jesus incarnates, or why God the Son incarnates as Jesus. This is God, God's heart toward suffering is to move toward it, not away from it. The first chapter of Mark alone already shows three separate instances of Jesus alleviating human suffering by healing people. And so God is obviously not opposed to the alleviation of human suffering through things like medication, seeing a psychiatrist at all. God is not opposed to that. In fact, the Puritan, and we all know the reputation that Puritans have, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs writes that contentment is not opposed to all lawful seeking for help in different circumstances, nor endeavoring simply to be delivered out of present afflictions by the use of, again, lawful means. Medication, seeing a psychiatrist, seeing a doctor, can be one of those lawful means if we're applying the Puritan's principle here. There's nothing inherently wrong with seeking relief from present suffering. The better question isn't whether Christians can, but whether they should. I think that's a more interesting and I think a more profitable question that we should be asking ourselves is whether we should or not. And the answer is, it depends. Don't you love that answer? It depends. I'm not going to tell you what to do. It depends. On the one hand, as we've seen scripture, 
Uh, it's clearly not against alleviating physical pain or symptoms. But on the other hand, Scripture clearly teaches at the same time too that God designs to transform us, to mark his presence with us, not in the absence of pain and trouble, but precisely in the midst of it. The way we actually identify with Jesus in his sufferings is through our suffering. This doesn't mean that we should unnecessarily put ourselves in the path of suffering, but that maybe we shouldn't always resist it. Because I think that's the common modern approach to suffering. It's to just completely always resist it. Resist something that's hard in our lives. Just sweep it under the rug. Ignore it. Medicate against it. But the thing is that God intends to not only alleviate our suffering, he also intends to redeem it and transform us in the midst of it. God has a deeper, deeper purpose in our pain. Our culture, the thing about our culture is that it doesn't see suffering as having any utility or benefit at all. And so, on the one hand, while extreme suffering can provoke our hearts toward fear, anger, worry, a lack of trust in God, on the other hand, non-existent suffering can also provoke our hearts toward complacency and, ironically, also self-reliance, not trusting God. You see, we like to believe that our relationship with God would be better if, we, if, 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 if there was just simply less suffering in our lives or if things in life were just easier. But the reality is that we are prone to wander from God when life is both hard and easy. Because the reality is that there is no ideal sweet spot for spiritual growth and maturity. Going back to the question of whether we should use medicine or not, again, on the one hand, it, it, we shouldn't think it's more spiritual to refrain from taking medication as though character refinement through suffering is the only good God is up to. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be too quick to cast off suffering as though immediate relief is the only good that God is up to. We need both perspectives. The alleviation of suffering can be seen as a source of God's goodness, but it can also be seen as a source of idolatry and independence from God. Medicine may alleviate physical symptoms, but it also masks spiritual symptoms as well. What we actually want to see is that medicine, actually nothing really is our savior. Only Jesus is. But because the body and soul, soul do qualify each other, because the soul is the initiator of human agency and the body is the mediator of it, we do also need to holistically approach both. And so how do we determine whether something is bodily or spiritually a problem? Well, in most cases, it's actually a bit of both. As a result, in the person that we're ministering to, the person that we're caring for, we want to consider bodily strength and weakness, physical limitations and weakness, physical symptoms and limitations like insomnia, restlessness, loss of energy, feeling sad. But as we consider the, the body, we also need to take into account how these physical limitations also affect the heart too. What if, if, we've, if those were physical limitations, what are spiritual limitations as well? What are spiritual symptoms? For example, people are less likely to listen to you, or I, I should actually say, people are less likely to listen to me if you are just running on just two hours of sleep at night. Um, or if you had a really long week at school and I'm lecturing you for two hours, uh, you're just less likely to listen to me. Uh, also, in general, you're just less likely to listen to the person uh, because they're speaking for two hours. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we also need to consider struggles of the heart. Heart symptoms, um, as we've listed physical symptoms, heart symptoms can be things like shame, um, identifying shame and identifying guilt, thanklessness, anger, anger toward God, anger toward others. Those are moral things. As, we, as I mentioned earlier, um, Scripture tends to speak of the heart as moral orientation, right and wrong. But again, the body, uh, Scripture also tends to speak of the body as, in terms of uh, physical limitations and, and strengths and weaknesses. And so a question that we need to ask is, how does physical pain, which is not a sin, affect the sufferer? How does it impair their hope in God? How is the sufferer responding to physical pain? 
What is their attitude toward God in the midst of pain? And just as the body can affect the heart for better or for worse, the heart can too. It's possible for heart issues to impact and even give rise to physical symptoms and ailments as well. For example, in Psalm chapter 32, verses 2 to 3, uh, David says, Blessed is the man again, sorry, uh, blessed is the man, there is no again in that verse, blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now David is making a correlation between unconfessed sin and the lack of physical vitality. Uh, in another passage in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 2, um, it's a very strange, uh, very disturbing passage. Uh, the author writes that Ammon, uh, David's son, became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar. And the, the, the context of this verse is that Ammon was so consumed with his sexual lust toward his sister that it actually came out uh, in physical uh, illness. And obviously there's, there's multiple layers of wrongness that's happening in this passage. Uh, but what is actually, what, uh, we don't know what kind of illness it was, but scripture is suggesting that there's a relationship between spiritual sin and physical suffering. Here's another example. Uh, when we are so worried it, it tends to, it, it can cause headaches. It can cause sleeplessness. It can cause stomach pain. Uh, it can cause even our skin to break out uh, in either hives or even acne. And so from both scripture and from both personal experience, there seems to be a correlation between sin and physical suffering. But we need to be very, very careful in making these one-to-one connections between sin and suffering. For example, if you'll remember, the whole point of the book of Job is that Job's afflictions and sufferings were not on account or as a result of his sin. Remember that? So we need to be very, very careful. The scriptures allow for this correlation, but it's not guaranteed. There is correlation, but not necessarily causation, okay? The point is that, actually the main point that I'm really just trying to make is that scripture requires a very, very nuanced and holistic approach in our care for people. Scripture, again, doesn't parse people into body and soul. Scripture doesn't say your heart did this or your body did this. Scripture teaches and recognizes that we are complex people. We are unified beings with overlapping aspects of body and soul. So that's two implications of all the theology that we've learned. Okay, so now practically, what do we do? And uh, yeah, so after like, I don't know, an hour and like 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes. Here it is. Um, here is how we can help. Practically speaking, here's what we can do. Okay? If you forget everything else that I've said, just listen to this and it should probably, I don't know, put two and two together, make the connections. How we can help first is move toward them and pray for them. Move toward them and pray for them. What I'm actually really just trying to say is don't freak out when you hear that someone is struggling with this big, unknown medical uh, or mental health disorder. Um, our first step toward those who suffer shouldn't be to freak out. It's really compassion. We should really say, I'm so sorry that you feel this way, that this is so hard for you. That should be the first thing that we say. That we say. I'm so sorry. Compassion is always first. Questions always come after. Compassion means, may mean being physically present with people, praying for them, obviously, doing something tangible. Maybe even, it might even mean like cleaning their room or something, like just, just, just forcing your way. Like if, it, if someone is so uh, dejected, so despondent, and like just things are just like piling up in their house or in their room, like, and, and they just need, they have nowhere to sleep um, because there's so much stuff on, on their bed or whatever. They just they don't have the, the, the capacity to, 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 I don't know, I'm just getting really specific and tangible here. Um, I don't know, help them clean their room or something. Um, move toward them and pray for them. Do something tangible. Uh, the second is get to know them better. Um, diagnostic labels, as we've seen so far, don't describe all that a person is. And so see it, see a diagnostic label, whatever it is, a description, these list of symptoms, whatever. See it simply as an invitation to get to know people better. Ask questions. What is this experience like for you? Um, how are you doing? Um, 
one of the other questions that we want to ask too is like, who, who is this person? Uh, what are their needs? Um, what, what do they need, in fact? Um, and so tailor, tailor your help according to their needs. Um, one passage that, I, that always comes to mind when I think about uh, this kind of application is, the, uh, is a passage in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, uh, where the Apostle Paul uh, says to admonish the idol, uh, where he says to help um, the weak, or sorry, to encourage the faint-hearted and to help the weak. And so you actually see three categories of people. Um, the Apostle Paul sees three categories of people. The idle, the faint-hearted, the discouraged, and the weak. And sometimes the person that you're, that you're kind of struggling, the, the person that you love who, who's struggling, might be a combination of all these three categories. And so sometimes we might, we might need to admonish, but sometimes we also need to encourage. Sometimes we also need to help. And so we need to tailor. So, so part of, I mean, part of tailoring our need to, our, our help for others requires knowing what people are going through, what they need. So who is this person? Get to know this person better. The third is treat this person the way you normally treat others, um, as I mentioned before. Uh, a big question that a lot of sufferers, I think, are asking um, when, they, when they share something with you is, will what, this, will what you know about me change how you treat me? Will what you know about me change your view of me? That is the number one fear that sufferers have. And will my struggles threaten people's love for me? And so be a consistent presence in the lives of those who suffer. Um, treat them the way you normally treat others. Um, the fourth is to <coughs> what's known as triage priorities. And so by triage, uh, it's a medical term. Triaging means simply um, prioritizing what is most helpful for uh, someone. Um, uh, emergency rooms, urgent care does that a lot. Uh, they try to triage, they try to uh, prioritize what's most important. So, for example, uh, they're going to prioritize someone who, like, literally broke their arm. You know, they're not going to wait four hours later for them to focus on setting the bone. They're going to treat it right away, um, I think, <laughs> hopefully. Um, and so we want to prioritize um, the needs of the people that we care for. And so here's, an, uh, here's a really tangible example of this. Um, postpartum dis- uh, depression. Um, there is a story that I uh, heard about um, a woman who just had a baby um, was suffering from what's known as postpartum depression. Um, she hated her newborn. Uh, she felt like wanting to drown her baby. Baby, Is that bad? Of course, absolutely. Is that excusable? Absolutely not. Um, does this hatred need to be addressed? For sure, absolutely. But when we take into account who this person is, is rebuking her, Correcting her, at that moment, the biggest priority. Well, it turns out that this, this, this poor lady who is suffering from postpartum depression barely had any sleep. She was constantly feeding her baby. She had to cook dinner for the rest of her family. I mean, her family's kind of whack. I'm like, why would, you, why would you allow your mom or your, your wife to do this? I mean, like, come on, husband or kids. Um, and so, obviously, we know that these physical symptoms didn't cause this woman to feel this way about her baby, obviously not, but it affected how she felt about her baby, for sure. And so what she needed first, she needs rest. She needs her husband to do the dishes, to do the laundry, to cook. She needs hope. She needs sisters to come alongside her. It doesn't mean that we don't address the the hatred of her baby, um, or the fact that she wanted to drown her baby, we, of course we need to address that, but we, we just simply prioritize what's most important and what's most dire. Obviously, if, if her baby is physically in danger, we have to actually remove um, the baby from, uh, from her mother, um, obviously, um, but um, we, we have to tailor our care for this person accordingly, okay? Triaging priorities. Uh, the fifth is um, we need to obviously address Obvious spiritual problems. And so uh, as much as we address the physical problems, we also have to address the spiritual problems too. We don't just sweep the, phys- uh, the spiritual problems under the rug. Uh, compassion does not ignore nor sweep unbelief or sin under the rug. Of course, um, the, the timing of our words is always crucial and will always require wisdom. But the Bible always portrays our sin as being deeper than any pain that we could experience. And so to ignore sin, especially when it's obvious, is to offer only a superficial kind of love and compassion. 
and to withhold help that is needed at the deepest level. For example, uh, let's just think about depression for a moment. Too often we think that a person who is depressed is uh, too fragile, can't handle any discussion of sin. Uh, We think that talking about sin with those who are depressed will crush their uh, self-worth even more. But a person's pain doesn't mean we ignore someone's uh, response to their pain. Suffering tends to bring out sinful responses to suffering. The pressure of difficult circumstances pushes the, the true conditions of our hearts to the surface. And so someone in pain might be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. Someone in pain might be tempted to completely hope in alleviating physical symptoms rather than hoping in God also. Someone in pain might be tempted to see their pain as an excuse to feel or to say or to do whatever they want. And so we have to address obvious spiritual problems while also addressing physical problems too. Again, like I mentioned, we need to be balanced. And I hope that our theology of embodied souls, the things that we all learned just for the past hour and a half, actually brings us to this moment where we actually can respond appropriately to someone who's suffering. The sixth is to acknowledge what you don't know. Rest in what you do. At the end of this talk, you're probably thinking, gosh, I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know how to help this person. Like, I don't, I don't know the, the intricacies of what this person is struggling with. Uh, I, you, know, you might not even be a health professional, and because you aren't, you probably also shouldn't be giving serious medical advice either. But you don't, you know, you, you don't know the, the DSM. I don't know the DSM. Um, there's a lot that we don't know. I mean, you're, you're a student. I'm just a pastor. But the thing is, you know the person in front of you. You know that you love the person that you care for. You know the scriptures. In fact, you know the person whom the scriptures point to. You know Jesus Christ. And so start there. If you have nowhere to start, start there. Just start with your care for this person. Start that you... Start, start with the scriptures, start with Jesus, start there. So rest in that, rest in what you do know. And then finally, uh, in light of point number six, uh, ask for help, obviously. Um, so obviously acknowledge, when we acknowledge what we don't know, we're more inclined to actually ask for help. And so um, if there's something that's like way beyond, like there's, there's clearly things that are way beyond my pay grade as a pastor, for sure. I'm, so I'm, 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 I'm turning to the elders, I'm turning to, uh, Pastor Jason, I'm turning to other uh, m- more knowledgeable health professionals who know more. I'm, I'm not even pretending to. I'm just, I'm a pastor who knows from the scriptures how to think through this from a theological perspective. But again, I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a health professional. I'm not a psychiatrist. And so I'm going to be asking for help. I'm going to be asking for other voices and w- other um, people who, who are a lot more knowledgeable about the body than I am. Um, and so ask for help. Um, do not be afraid of asking for help. Um, finally, 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 if you are to forget anything that I said for the past hour and a half or so, almost two hours, remember this. Keep the cross of Jesus at the center of your care. The ultimate goal in caring for someone with mental health issues is not to solve their issues, not to fix their problems. It is always to point them to Jesus. Jesus is the premier man of sorrows. No one knows a person suffering your suffering better than he does. Jesus is our great high priest. He knows our grief. He knows our pain. He knows our worries. He knows and went through human weakness. He's been through it all, all but the sin. Eugene Peterson, and I love, I love, um, Quoting from this passage, um, I, I think I used it a lot in our uh, Book, of Job, Book of Job series, but uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He says, We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing, he experienced it all, all but the sin. And so let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. And so we point people to the cross of Jesus Christ as the ultimate relief of people's burdens. On the cross, Jesus suffered for us. There, Jesus bore it all for us. And so we keep the sufferings of Jesus at the center of all of our care for others. Even if we forget everything else, remember this. Jesus is with us. 
and with, with all who suffer. That is God's promise for all who suffer. He is with us always. I am done. I'm sorry for going so long, but again, going back to the meme earlier, one does not simply talk about mental health in 40 minutes. It's way too big of a topic to even talk about for even two hours. And so um, if you have any questions, I mean, it's 10 o'clock. We don't have any time to, to go through this, uh, to go through any small group material. But if you do have questions, um, please, uh, you're welcome to come up to me, ask any questions you want about it. Um, but let me pray for us and uh, let you guys go.